podcasting from the world's most livable city, Melbourne. This is the Your Career Down Under Show, a podcast dedicated to help newly arrived skilled migrants and settled migrants with their career and employment issues. We interview recruiters, career coaches, HR experts and employers who share tips, techniques and insights to help you land a job quickly and rapidly advance your career. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Naishad Gadani coming to you from Melbourne. And my apologies, I think the first LinkedIn Live did not kick off on time and on the track that we wanted it to. Uh, and this is 192nd episode of Career Care Package. And on today's episode, we are absolutely thrilled to have Cassandra Goodman, author of Self Fidelity, the book. You know, that, uh, that little voice that starts probably when you were two, three years old and continues until you die, and that overpowers you most of the time. And as my son coming in telling me that India lost one wicket, and that is very unfortunate. I'm really upset. I'll have to, you know, this will be a taste for me. This will be a taste for me to keep my inner voice down as well. So I'm going to be very <laughs> deliberate on here. Uh, but we are absolutely thrilled to have Cassandra talk about how can you really embrace that voice or how can you go beyond that voice that really nags you. But before we have a word with uh, Cassandra and start to dig into the topic, let's welcome Caroline Brown. Thanks, Nation. Cassandra, it's absolutely lovely to have you here today. And I think the book that you've written is very well timed for the next year because I think everybody needs, perhaps has been a year for reflection, forced or otherwise, with the people of who they are and how they show up. And um, it'd be great to have that kind of affirmation that you're on the right track or helping people find the right path as well. So thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. It's wonderful to be here. Fantastic. So I guess a great place to start, but if you can give people an understanding of the work that you do and perhaps tell people how you came to write the book. Sure. So the work I do, I suppose they call, they call it a portfolio career these days, don't they? So yeah. I, I do lots of different work. So I, I'm a coach. I'm a facilitator with Thrive Global, the company founded and led by Arianna Huffington out of the out of the US and I'm also a consultant and now I can say that I'm an author which is really exciting for me and yeah the work I do really spans quite a broad range I, I help leaders to shape culture I do a lot of work around underpinning great customer experiences with great employee experiences I like to play in employee well-being uh, I've come out of a two-decade corporate career. So uh, at the pinnacle of my corporate career, I was a global director of employee experience at a global healthcare company where I was responsible for activating that organization's purpose, longer, healthier, happier lives for an 86,000 person workforce across the globe. So I've got a lot of experience of how do you create cultures that really uh, enable great employee health outcomes uh, and therefore great customer and commercial outcomes. So how did you come to write the book Self-Fidelity? It's such a great title. I really, you know, you, you, you read it and you, you understand immediately what, what the premise of the book is about. Oh, I'm glad you said that because 
You know, I, I it took me a long, long time to come up with the title Self Fidelity and to come up with the book, which I have a copy of here. <laughs> so it took me three years to write this book <laughs> and it's been a long and windy road. Perhaps some of your viewers and listeners have written books and, and understand that, that it's not um, a simple, straightforward process. It takes a lot of uncovery, uncovering, discovery, working, writing, rewriting. And after many, many years of well, two and a half years of writing, I had this moment of clarity when I really had this a moment when I thought, what is it really, really, really that I want to say? What is the core message that I want to encapsulate in, in this book? And it became clear through meditation and reflection that really the message I stand for is this idea of being true to our central nature as humans in the context of our work. Mm -hmm. And when I got clear on that, that core message that in a world that kind of pushes us to conform, to comply, sometimes to suppress or betray the truth of who we are at our essence as humans. Uh, in a working world that tends to do that to us, I, I feel very strongly that we all need a practice to remember and reconnect and generate faithfulness to the essence of who we are and so once I came up with that you know I googled faithfulness and then I realized fidelity was, was a synonym for faithfulness and then I realized that self-fidelity was this, this space and that no one had really talked about the term self-fidelity I found one obscure reference in an obscure text but no one was talking about self-fidelity and I think we've talked a lot about self-compassion and we talked about self-love and I believe now it's time to talk about self-fidelity, which I define as the practice of remaining true, remaining faithful to the essence of who we are. Mm. How do you know when you're not? I mean, when you're not, what are some of the signs that might be obvious to other people or apparent to yourself, do you think? Mm. Well, I think sadly... Well, my experience in the working world, the majority of the time I wasn't being faithful to my true nature. And I think, you know, there's a, it's easy to confuse this idea of fitting in with true belonging. And we, we now know from the research that fitting in is, is not a pathway to true belonging, that we experience true belonging when we, when we own our story and we own the truth of who we are and that we don't kind of betray ourselves in order to, to fit in. And and so I suppose for me, it kind of felt like I was holding a beach ball underwater, you know, trying to perhaps suppress parts of my nature that often felt like an inconvenience to the organisations I was working in. And you know, the, the elements of our true nature that I, I choose to explore in the book are the, that we're caring, that we're creative, that we're playful, that we're worthy, and that we're vulnerable. Mm. And when you think about those elements of our nature, you know, we're not really encouraged to inhabit our vulnerability as executives anyway. You know, it's kind of a, a tradition to armor up, to wear the mask, to pretend that there's nothing to see. Uh, in terms of our caring nature, you know, I was given the direct feedback in my career. A manager said to me once, Cassie, the problem with you is that you care too much. Mm. You never want to become an executive, you've got to learn how to care less. And 
know, that's like a cheese grater on your soul, you know, being told to care less when you are a caring being, as I believe we all are underneath all the conditioning. And so, you know, for me, it, it was this, um, this feeling of being diminished subtly but in a pervasive way being diminished and that perhaps is this feeling like I had to hide the truth of who I was. And, you know, we say all the time now, bring your whole self to work, right? We say it all the time, bring your whole self to work. And I often think, what part of me was I meant to be checking at the door before <laughs> I bring my whole self to work? And I think it's actually our heart. So I think the, um, the subtle messaging is check your heart at the door and, you know, drink a can of Harden Up and, and let's get on with work. And that, I don't think that's a humane way of working. Mm. It's funny, you don't see those words in a job description or an advertisement, do you? It's like, you know, we want you to bring vulnerability, caring, compassion, sense of humour. Sometimes you see work hard, play hard, but they're kind of like two separate things. So, um, Yes. We, we, I think that's one of the other kind of mistruths, if we like, that, that work is the opposite of play and, and mm. it's just not true. Uh, the opposite of play is depression and we are inherently playful beings and mm. i've certainly had many experiences of work as productive play and I, I believe when we're at our best work feels like productive play and i believe that we all have the opportunity to experience work in that way not every day all day but but certainly enough of the time that we should be able to set free and really um embody our natural playful nature yeah absolutely yeah Cassandra, one of the things around you know is that how can you uh you know being true to yourself you you may know yourself i might know a bit about myself but but you know getting buy-in from the network around you so that there is not less friction, but there's more understanding of that. Where does it start with, uh, you know, how can I, not, not so much how can I ensure, but how do I start, uh, you know, to really, really take the buy-in from my manager or from my team that this is who I am. Uh, and there are parts of me which are not particularly workable, or there are parts of me which are amazing. There's some parts of me which are not particularly may not be likable or may not have, uh, you know, is not something that in alignment to organizational, you know, values or whatever. How can you really take, you know, get that mind from where do you really start the conversation? Mm -hmm. Great question, you know, and of course there's no easy answers and that, that's why I believe self-fidelity is a lifelong practice and that we always have to work with the awareness of the context in which we're operating, the organisational culture in which we're operating. And when we choose to go and work in a certain organisation with a certain culture and with certain social norms and expectations, then we're kind of um, making a, a choice about um, what we think is going to be acceptable and permissible within that culture and how much of that is in alignment with the truth of who I am. And so, you know, if you go and work in a certain culture where, you know, it, it is a, a kind of an unwritten rule that you should drink a can of hard enough every morning and we don't talk about our personal lives and we don't talk about our kids and if we're struggling, we put the mask on and pretend there's nothing to see. And, you know, we all know there are still, unfortunately, organisations around that, that have those sorts of 
um, social norms. And so if you make the choice to work and continue to work in a, an organisational system with those sorts of rules and play, then, then it comes at a cost. And I think, you know, I talked about this idea of kind of holding a beach ball underwater. And, and when we do that, when we suppress the elements of our nature, just like a beach ball, I think these elements of ourselves can kind of pop up at really um, unfortunate times and, and sometimes in an exaggerated way. And I, I think when, when we find a sort of culture, when we find sort of leaders who um, accept us for who we are and with all our imperfections, um, and kind of, um, as a team, we, we make each other whole, that we work collaboratively and together, knowing that we all bring certain strengths and perhaps for some of us, um, certain uh, elements of our personality, you know, if we work as a team of one, could be detrimental to how do we together um, create a cohesive team that, that covers everything that we need to have covered to work and perform at a high level. And so I think, you know, the answer to your question is um, to have your eyes wide open in terms of what the cultures you're working in and, and what those cultures mean in terms of the permission you have to go with yourself, choosing wisely, because if you have to kind of pretend to be something you're not to get a job, you're going to have to pretend to be something you're not to get a job, right? And that, that I think, it can be corrosive over time to our wellbeing. Um, so working with awareness of that and um, I, I think that this idea of being true to ourselves is certainly not an excuse to behave badly or to not work on our sharp edges, but it's about kind of remembering that at our core, I, I believe at our core we are good. We have the elements of ourselves that are good and that are enduring over our whole lives. And when we restore our faith in those elements of ourselves that are good and enduring, for example, our very nature, then as a byproduct of that, we, we restore our faith in each other. And that's why I think it's the idea, the more I thought about these concepts of Stoffardelli, the more I wrote, and now the more I talk about it, the more I feel that, that really it can create this tremendous ripple effect across cultures within organisations. So you think they can start from, because a lot of people talk about culture coming from the, the top, right? But you, you think that if, if it comes, you have a responsibility or you have you can have some influence as, say, a mid-tier professional or, you know, an, an employee rather than a manager, that you can have that level of influence that creates that culture as well? Look, I think each individual within a system contributes to the, the culture within that system. And so the, the the laws of system dynamics mean that though even though each individual creates this ripple effect within the system, the relative power of the individual versus the system, you know, our individual power is dwarfed by the power of the collective and the system and the, the unwritten rules and the social norms and mm. certainly the leadership um, what, what leaderships, uh, how leaderships show up, um, what's okay and what's not okay is demonstrated by the leaders within the organisation. I mean, those things carry the most power. So I, I think for me, um, having worked in lots of different organisational systems with really strong cultures, I, I think, again, it's about not, not giving up our own sense of agency because I do believe one individual can make a difference. I've seen that happen many times and I think we all have a, um, a certain amount of agency and we also need to influence leaders 
and we need to uh, find like-minded folks within our organisations to work together as a collective and, and to find the courage to speak up. And, and I think a lot of the time in the work I do around culture, there can be these cultural norms or stories or you know the way we do things around you that just go unchallenged and are just, just perpetuated over time. And it only takes a handful of, of brave individuals to say, hey, you know what, I, I think we could do better. Mm. Um, and to start a conversation about how we want to shape culture in a way that's really going to facilitate strong performance and well-being outcomes for, for employees and that those two actually go hand in glove they're not they're not at the cost of each other that that uh, well-being underpins performance and that when you get those two things right that then you create true organizational sustainability So we just wanted to welcome Poonam and Susan to the discussion. Hello, uh, Poonam and Susan. If you've got questions uh, for Cassandra, or if you've got any anecdotes to share from your experience of, you know, work and you know, self-worth, uh, you know, please uh, drop that in. We would love to hear from uh, from our listeners as well. Cassandra, you know, because I think before we came on the show, you know, Caroline talked about the prologue of your book, and you sent us. Uh, you know that uh, you know as well. Are you able to read that because you know Caroline, uh, you know, suggested it's a very powerful story that you're narrating. Uh, we would love to love to get a kind of a, a taste of the what the book is all about. So I'll give you hand over the microphone to you if you want to read the prologue to us. That would be fantastic, and then we'll take some more questions. Thanks, Nash. So I will because. The the story I tell in the prologue and you know, the the prologue of my book you can download from my website for free. So if anyone's interested in reading the whole lot, you can go to my website and find it. So the story I tell in the prologue is a story about a performance review that I had some time ago, um, where the opening line of my manager at the time in my performance review, her opening line was, "If this was 1980, I would be telling you to put on shoulder pads and red lipstick." You're so small, you lack any sort of gravitas. And, you know, that, that was a really difficult thing for me to hear. Uh, I, I, I was really taken aback by those comments. But then, as I tell in the story of Paul Reflection, in, in the, the hours and weeks that followed that difficult, confronting performance review, I realised that I was small. Uh, I mean, I am small, I'm five foot nothing, but, but I was playing small. I was not showing up uh, as the most powerful version of myself and that um, these, these patterns that had plagued me throughout my career had once again um, come to the surface, these um, tendencies of trying to prove myself, trying to um, believing that my self-worth was attached to my achievements and not working from a place of true, uh, a true sense of worthiness in myself. And, that meant that I'd been striving in an unhealthy way, proving myself, avoiding difficult conversations. And so the feedback that that manager gave me was actually some of the most valuable feedback I've ever been given. And it's really forced me to do the work and to reflect on what do I need to do in order to step into my full potential as a leader. And so in the prologue, um, I finished the story by saying that um, 
the the line that my my manager said if this was 1980 i'd be telling you to put on shoulder pads and red lipstick well in 1980 i was five years old i was born in 1975 so this is what i say if i could in fact travel back to 1980 and give myself a good talking to this what is what i would say to the five-year-old version of myself the world you are growing up in is a masterclass on how you should be but you don't have to be a good student you'll be very very tempted to join the hospital and to strive relentlessly to collect gold stars first in the form of good grades and later in the form of fancy job titles, top talent accolades and big salary packages. However, clamouring your way to the top won't fulfill you. You won't ever get anywhere near to feeling that you're enough. Instead, you can learn what it means to be true to yourself in life and in work. This will not be easy. The world of work will try to twist your kindness into weakness, your desire to take care of people into a liability. Your playfulness and sense of humor will be made to feel inappropriate. Those single-mindedly pouring their way to the top will take advantage of your openness to gain personal leverage. Those in power will try to diminish your high ethical standards, labeling you as naive. You will face many challenges, but keep on practicing being you. Short, kind, open, caring, playful, idealistic, imperfect, and at times inappropriate. <laughs> Brave. Learn to trust in the importance of your uniqueness, the truth of your worthiness, and the vastness of your potential. Do this, and you won't need to wear shoulder pads or armor or red lipstick. Do this, and your enoughness is off the table. Absolutely magical words, and I think so many people can connect and, and relate to all of those things and, you know, reflecting on the times that I've been told that throughout my career as well. So, um, yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, where do you start? I mean, do people, it's probably different starting points for different people, isn't there, in terms of meeting yeah. that level of self-awareness about who you really are. So where, where would you suggest people do start? Sure. So I believe in my experience of self-fidelity, and this is this is my interpretation of the practice, and because this is really a new body of work, my, my hope is that people take this body of work, adapt it and make it their own and create a self-fidelity practice that, that works for them. So the, the invitation I give in the book is a, a starting point, and I talk about four core practices, and I represent these as an infinity loop, as an as a ongoing learning loop that I believe continues through a whole lifetime. So the four elements of the learning loop uh, is waking up, waking up really uh, as Nash started waking up is really about realizing that that we are not the voices in our head that the voices in our head do not represent the real us that our, our natural um, and most essential way of being is something that the voices in our heads often cloud and pull us away from so waking up is really about reconnecting to the, the truth of who we are and a way of being that transcends all the, the, the fake news feed in our head. So that's waking up, the first practice. Then it's really about letting be. Letting be is really about reconnecting and re reorienting to the enduring parts of ourselves, that, that the parts of ourselves that perhaps we've been conditioned to suppress, deny or betray. And I talk about those five elements that we talked about, but there's many more elements of our true nature that perhaps we need to let be. Mm. Then I talk about letting go. 
letting go is really about dropping the burden of the, the beliefs that diminished us. So the belief perhaps that I need to go it alone, the belief that I need to shield my heart, the, the belief that work is the opposite of play. As just a few examples of the kind of heavy belief system that we we tend to um, to to, to internalise, and often the voices of our teachers, our parents, early bosses we have in our career that we internalise this belief system and it weighs us down. So letting go is about um, dropping those burdens, and then letting in the fourth core practice is really about um, letting in the nourishment that we need to live. That might be about tuning into our intuition, and might be letting in love. And uh, I, I'm I'm a big fan of the work of Dr. Barbara Fredrickson and her book Love 2.0, which really redefines love and makes it far more accessible and um, important in the context of work. Um, letting in more linking, soaking in the nourishing the nourishment we need through positive emotions such as joy or gratitude. Um, so that's the letting in. So they're, they're the four core practices and the, the book is really structured to take people through each of those four elements with a whole bunch of practical tools and, and practices people can start to play around with mm. to work through the waking up, the letting be, the letting go and the letting in and figuring out how to kind of personalise those practices in a way that works for them. Mm. That's have you what what kind of practices do you see uh you know in, in covid 19 situations because you know it has been you know pretty stressful time especially mm -hmm. for Melbournians, uh, victorians and also for you know millions of other people who've been devastatedly impacted by that but if we just focus on on australia and victoria what are some of the things that you have seen which you kind of you know can say you know what i talked about mm -hmm. this in this book and i i kind of relate to this so much about it because it has brought a lot of things uh you know into us for example i i find myself that i'm you know I get irritated even uh, after five, six o'clock when I hear my son loves to play cricket and sometimes when he throws the ball, I get absolutely irritated and feel, you know what, I just want to take this ball and throw this to the, to the next galaxy. I don't want to see this ever again, you know. So I've seen myself that triggers that I that were never triggers before. Now they are becoming, you know, very, you know, very, you know, lively triggers for me. What observations do you have and how do you see the book really, you know, kind of, you know, syncs with this? Mm. Well, in terms of those, those triggers, when we become triggered by the bouncing cricket ball or, you know, small things at home or at work, you know, that's really uh, covered in the practice of waking up, right? Because, you know, that old saying, it's not what happens to us, it's what we say to ourselves about what happens to us that creates this emotional reaction that's less than ideal, an emotional reaction that pulls us away from your true caring nature as a dad in the example of a cricket ball, right? So I'm sure there's been many instances where you hear that cricket ball and there, there's no um, less than ideal emotional response, right? You just hear yeah, my son's playing cricket, good on him. And then other times where that same sound becomes noise <laughs> and then there's a story that makes us really frustrated. And so waking up is really about just putting all of that on slow motion. You know, when is the cricket ball bouncing us down? When is it noise? And what is the story I attach to the noise that creates this frustration within me? 
And that's the practice of waking up. And you know, for those of listeners who meditate, um, you know, they've been very familiar with the idea of getting into the witness position of our thoughts. So learning to see that our, those emotions, those thoughts about the cricket ball and the frustration, they are the clouds moving across the sky and we are not the weather, we are the sky. So how do we learn to um, notice these thoughts, notice these emotions, but not become entangled in them to the extent where we say things that, that let us down and let down the people we love the most. And this is really, really hard, right? I, I have this thing sometimes at night if no one in my family, so I've got two young sons and a husband, if, if none of them have asked me about my day, that's my trigger. I have this little voice in my head that says, Kathy, none of these people love you. <laughs> none of them ask you what you say. Therefore, none of them love you. And it's just an absurd story, right? That that somehow the fact that they haven't asked me about my day is proof that they don't love me. It's really absurd. But I get hooked. I still get hooked. Not not as much as I used to, but I still find myself sitting at the dinner table really grumpy because no one's asked me about my day. And and really that practice is about noticing, ah, I'm feeling grumpy. The story in my head is that because no one asked me about my day, no one loves me. And, and it's about having the awareness and the cultivating the practice of asking yourself the question, is that story true? So mm. when you hear that, some days when you hear the cricket ball and there's a story and that story creates a frustration, the practice is whatever that story is, is that really true? Mm. And when I, when I react from believing that thought as the truth versus uh, seeing that thought, having some space between me and that thought, having a level of discernment about whether I'm going to believe that thought, then I have the chance to respond from a more resourceful state, from a more loving state, rather than react from the emotional charge of that fake news story in our head. Mm. And so it, it's ongoing vigilance, it's ongoing practices, it's noticing that the noises, the sound has become noise, and the noise is a story, and the story is making me very frustrated. Noticing all that, taking a few deep breaths and having some sort of mechanism to change your state in that moment and to, to find a more resourceful state from which you're going to behave. And if you don't manage to do that, it's about an hour later when you've been triggered and you've said something to your son, going back and apologising and make, and saying, I'm going to try better next time. Mm. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Because I think... Um, we go through this kind of zombie-like state, I reckon, a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. We get so busy at work that that angry outburst or that thought that then becomes the reality becomes the reality. With, and, you know, because we're so buried in in the day-to-day of what we do. So I really like that analogy. I find whenever I get cranky, it's like, okay, time to stop work and go for a walk, you know, just because I, I know that any response that I have at that time is not going to be very pleasant so no um, and we all get like that right it's the awareness as you've got caroline to to say that yeah i'm not in a resourceful state now what what action am i going to take to either just limit my exposure to anyone Mm. or or change my state Mm. um and yeah in the book i call it trance you know trance or autopilot and we spend most of our day in this zombie like you know half dead um sort of way and uh, way of being um we're not fully present we're not present and 
uh, and it's not it's clearly not possible maybe unless you're a fully enlightened being to spend all day every day in a full state of presence but <laughs> certainly we can catch ourselves when we've been swept away by the fake news feed you know I, I talk in the book I talk about these DJs that run my inner news channel which, which is just pumping 24 7 fake news and if the, if the radio station in my head had a catchphrase it would be easy listening hard living <laughs> and you know we all have this radio station right and we can't turn it off but we can learn to turn the volume down and we can certainly begin to realize that our thoughts are not instruction on how to behave yeah what about you know um i guess um really that kind of process of finding what it is for you like finding that role because you obviously changed into self-employment in the portfolio career so what was your process of you know doing what you're doing now how, how did you make that work? yeah it you know it's it I, i've had over a 20-year career i've had three roles being made redundant over that period and um, the first redundancy happened after eight great years. I was with GE. I worked here in Australia and Europe and I had this great eight-year career with GE and I got a redundancy there. And, and and I think for me it's been those redundancy moments where I think, okay, I've got a little bit of a buffer, a financial buffer here. What do I want to do next? And for, for me, you know, living with a mortgage and, you know, the, the financial responsibilities we all have, for me it was that first moment where I thought, okay, what do I want to do next? And I thought, no, I want I'll, 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 I had no question about working for myself at the time. I took another role and I ended up joining Origin Energy and had a, had a great career there. But then um, the next time, several years later, my role was made redundant. I thought, the thought entered my head, maybe I should back myself. Maybe now it's time to think, you know, if I can work with clients across multiple organisations. Because I, I always had this yearning to do this work across multiple organisations, not just within the organisation I was part of. And the yearning came up and then I was approached for another great executive role which I couldn't say no to and I went back to that role. And then years down the track, that role got made redundant because this is the way of life for now, all these restructures. And then the third time I was like, right, now I'm going to back myself. I'm going to back myself. something. <laughs> so that, that's the honest answer. It took the third redundancy um and i said now's the time I'm, because i knew you know I, I, um i've never had trouble finding jobs i've, I've been lucky always to be approached for these great roles and i've got a strong network and i i worked hard on a good skill skill set so i knew i could find another executive role if i wanted to and so i knew i had to get in the driver's seat of my career and i hadn't really been in the driver's seat of my career i'd been kind of following the opportunities for for over two decades and i thought i'm going to get in the driver's seat and i'm going to take this turn off and of, of growing my own business and just see where the road leads and that, that was two years ago and um you know it's a bit lonely i miss having a team i miss being part of a team i miss having a strategy document Often I have a weekly thought like, well someone just tell me the strategic priorities for my business. <laughs> I miss that. Um, but I'm loving working with clients across multiple organizations and seeing them grow and develop and, and most of all having the time and space to write this book and I started writing it when I was a full-time executive. I'd get up at 5 a.m., I'd write for an hour, then I'd go to the gym and I'd come home and get the boys ready to school. And, of course, you know, by 8 o'clock I was 
exhausted <laughs> at night, you know, and it, you know, it got me started, but it wasn't, I wasn't walking the talk of, you know, living a, a life that was sustainable. So for me, having worked for myself for the last few years has given me that space to codify my thinking, to get it into a format I feel proud of and to now be doing this work, it, it's really a dream come true. Excellent, Cassandra. I don't think so. I have got any more questions, or I'm not sure. Carolyn, have you got any more questions for Cassandra? Uh, no, actually, I'm just um, really reflecting on you know just what you were saying about your book, and it takes a lot of work to make things sound, put things in a logical and actionable order. And I imagine that process, you know, had quite a few iterations for you. Lots of iterations. So over the three years process the the title changed the structure changed the book reinvented itself probably about 10 times and then finally about six months ago it just crystallized and it's like this is it this is what the core message and then the structure became clear but it took a lot of work and i had probably about 15 people who i shared early drafts with that gave me feedback along the way so if anyone's thinking about writing a book, I would definitely say give it the time it's going to take to create something that you're proud of, and it might it might take several years. In my case, it did. Find a trusted tribe of people that are going to give you honest feedback, and yeah, you know, um, the, the the version before this one, I didn't have as many practical tools, and people said to me, "I'm loving it, but I feel like you know what I should be doing, but you're not you're not telling me the tools." And I was like, "Oh my gosh, I have to tell you the tools," and so I really worked hard. I'm making it practical uh, and you know I've had people who've read it and said like just finish your book I'm going back to the beginning to read it all over again and people who bought the book are now buying it for their friends and colleagues and family for Christmas so yeah I couldn't um, be more you know grateful and uplifted from the response that the book, the book has had and I'm just really glad I took that time because I did have people say to me just write the book Cassie no one's going to read it it's a business card fun factor just get it out and I'm really glad I rejected that advice <laughs> people never I, I, I'd like to write a couple of books but I know that process they take as long as they they take and that it does take time to do it I'm, I'm with you I couldn't write something just to Get it out there basically you, you want to you write something you invest in it you've got a message you want to have it to have a level of impact as well so yeah and a level of integrity i think that you know there is this saying at the moment books books are business card with that factor i don't i don't know you've heard that saying but that was not the book i wanted to write <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely great Cassandra. thank you for being on the show and sharing not only just about your book, but your learnings over a period of time as well. So we wish you all the best and we'll put the link of your book on our LinkedIn live chat so that people can go and buy that for themselves and their friends as well. So Cassandra, once again, thank you very much for being on our show. We absolutely had a blast having you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. Thanks so much, Cassandra. Um, Nate, we've got our final show tomorrow for the year and coming back in a new form. That's it, yeah. yeah as as uh, Barack Obama said, 
mic drop we are going to drop the mic tomorrow uh, uh you know as well so after 192 we are not uh, no one's got us out so i say we are declaring at 193 runs that's how i would like to say that because we can come back next year as well but yes tomorrow we will be joined by 32 avengers uh, as i like to call them uh, and they'll be coming in the slot of eight eight people because we can't otherwise you'll need probably a binocular to see how tiny they, they look on the screen so that's why we will have eight people coming from 3 p.m to 5 p.m but which you are going to have a lot of fun so we would love you to be part of it you can you know take picture of yourself in a christmas avatar we are going to put some christmas stuff as well uh you know on ourselves to look festive as well and i think it is the time for us to let our guards loosen a little bit and and have some fun so join us tomorrow 3 p.m it's going to be a marathon we'll start at 3 p.m exactly but i don't know when we are going to end. it might be five half past five six o'clock nine o'clock i don't know until until my kids say that shut up now we will continue but look you know we will see you tomorrow everyone have a great Great evening and uh, look after yourself and your loved ones and bye for now. Bye everyone. Thank you everyone for listening to the Your Career Down Under show. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to know more about how Your Career Down Under can help you, please reach out to us on www.yourcareerdownunder.com.au and if you have got a question about today's episode or if you want us to do a particular show on a particular topic, please reach out to us. We would love to do that. Until next time, be well.